This is an ABC podcast. Can you be more Pacific? On ABC Radio Australia. Yes, hello and welcome to another week of Can You Be More Pacific? Talking all things sport across the Pacific. I'm Dean Hullitow. Welcome to the show. And it sounds a little bit different this week because of COVID. Uh, we all have to adjust. And Sez is actually joining us from down in beautiful Kayama. And she's coped in. Well, hi, Sez. Hi, hello. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. More importantly, how are you going? I'm very well. I know in Sydney, um, there is a serious lockdown in motion, but down here in Kayama, that is not the case at all. So I'm just lapping it up by the beach, enjoying um, the bits of sun that we have. But nonetheless, I'm just really grateful that I can still tune in this week and host the show with you. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, get through what we have today. And uh, what is it that's coming up in the next hour? We take a look back at the weekend in sport. We have an interview with Tiana Metarao and we have a new question for our segment, You Can Ask That. Well, it's good. I can't wait to get through all of that. Uh, What about, we'll lead off with our our top story, and it's something that everyone in Australia was no doubt really proud of, and it was, uh, the the most impressive thing for me was uh, the way in which uh, this young lady conducted herself after the win, even in the lead up to it, she's been all around awesome, but Ash Barty, what what a performance over in Wimbledon. She had an absolute incredible win, and I just love the coverage that's followed, um, that match because it's like you said it's just spotlighted what a stellar human she is she's the first australian woman to win the wimbledon singles since avon google in 1980 beautiful ending um to nadoc week as well which tied in very lovely but i guess what a proud moment for every single australian yeah very proud for for every australian as you said and for us she she spoke about during the week uh when she won the semi-final progress through to the to the final what it would mean to her a childhood dream is what, what she put to it and um, yeah, that, that, uh, comparison to Yvonne Gulagon Corley when, um, she lifted it 41 years prior and her first one, uh, 50 years prior to that, there was so much around it that just all aligned for Ash and, uh, and it was yeah, a, a great performance and well done to her. And also, uh, another tennis icon of Australia, Dion Alcott, uh, the quad Wimbledon champ again, uh, I'm not too sure how many that is for him, but he's racking them up, uh, Dylan Alcott. And he's another guy that, um, is just a, a, a real, uh, legend in Australian sport already, but um, someone that, that really holds himself really well when he post-match and um, in the lead-up. He's, he's a real character that everyone loves to watch. Yes, it is his second Wimbledon title. The first time he secured it was in 2019. He's had a successful run since then, and I'm sure he'll be looking to impress in the Tokyo Paralympics. Yeah, he's a character as well when you hear him commentate. He's got some um, some great one-liners. Love listening to Dylan when he's on commentary. And congratulations also to Novak Djokovic, who took out the men's uh, Wimbledon singles final. Uh, he's now equaled Federer and Nadal for slam record, so you would anticipate he's going to take that down in the near future. Absolutely. He's got GOAT status. If you're up there with Federer and Nadal, you have GOAT status. Yeah. You can't even argue with that. He's actually going for the Grand Slam this year. So we, the next one that he will be playing at is the uh, US Open. Great. Anyway. I'm just going to agree because I one more. really can't I can't talk tennis. But you know what? When I watch tennis, I just think, you know what? Why don't I go pick up a racket? Because I feel like I can do it. And then I get on the court and I absolutely cannot do it. Your tall, your your height, and of course your athleticism too. You'd be a good tennis player. Yeah, and like they wear really nice things on the court as well. It's different to so like stud that, boots yeah, okay. and knee high <laughs> socks. <laughs> get into it for the fashion. 
Love it. Well, why don't we turn our attention over to the plays of the week, uh, starting off with the QRL. PNG lost to the Sunshine Coast Falcons 12 to 26. It's yeah. been a very unlucky run for the Hunters. Yeah, they've had a tough season and uh, they started that game really well, but the Sunshine Coast Falcons, they've had a tough season themselves. They had to come from behind to, to get that victory and they're the feeder for the Melbourne Storm. But obviously, um, COVID plays a part in, in their um, own performances because when players are in bubbles, they can't access them, so they're not getting players dropped back, which means everything's disrupted. Um, but yeah, the Hunters continue their their tough tough season. Hopefully, they can turn things around, and um, I think there might be about seven rounds left in that competition. So hopefully, they can get a bit of a, a run going and, and really push towards some semi-finals football. Good to see them back on the field, but last weekend. And in other NRL results, the Raiders defeated Manly thirty to sixteen last Thursday night, which was. Um, some would say an upset for the Raiders, but a good win nonetheless. Yeah, round 17 has been a strong improvement from round 16 where we saw um, sides put no points on the board. Um, but like you said, huge upset and hopefully a momentum they can roll with because as we all know, Raiders have been pretty inconsistent over the past couple of um, weeks. They have. So that's one that Ricky Short was really happy with. And the second game for the weekend was, there was only four games played across the weekend, but South defeated the Cowboys 46 to 18 at a game that was moved up to Newcastle. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a really strong performance from South. The Cowboys started well. I thought that was a bit of a turning point for them, the way they started, but um, South turned it into gear from about probably the 20th to 30th minute. And, um, um, it was all she wrote. The, the, the South Sydney Rabbitohs, their wingers, uh, who continue to play really well. Tane Milne, who's been brought into the, the side sort of mid-season, he got three tries. And then on the other side of the field, Alex Johnston uh, got another hat-trick and he now sits on top of the leading try scorer table for the year. It's almost impossible for South to play a game and Alex Johnston not cross the white line. But <laughs> a really fun fact that I found on the net was that South remain undefeated in Newcastle for over a decade. And it's also their fifth straight win. So obviously they're building very nicely towards the business end of the season. Yeah, they've had a couple of really big losses this year. They've lost twice by 50 points. Um, so for them to turn that around and put in some really consistent form and, and still be one of those dominant teams of the competition, uh, it does show that they're going to be a handful come the end of the year. The Roosters defeated the Bulldogs on Saturday night, 22 points to 16. Uh, what a match. It was a good match. It was, Sorry, I just, yeah, no, that's I fair. Just jump in. I was blown away because obviously I think most would have expected Bulldogs, um, not necessarily to be, oh no, I'll be honest. I was expecting the Bulldogs to be put away quite early. I know you're very passionate about the Bulldogs, <laughs> but facts are facts. Um, but it was a very competitive game. Yeah, Did you I, find that? I, I agree. I, I was um, actually working in my, my other role and um, a couple of the people at work, uh, are big Bulldogs fans, and I was—I jokingly said to them, oh, "This might be one the Bulldogs get up for you tonight." And they rolled their eyes. Yeah, whatever. They're going to get touched up again. And um, sure enough, they—they they put in a really, a really solid performance. But um, the Roosters just a lot, enough class to get away with it, mm. and it was helped at the, at the finish line. There was a chance for the Bulldogs if they retained possession, but on the last play of the game, the young eighteen-year-old halfback for the Roosters decides to do what? turn around and run towards his own try line. I don't know. I don't know. I find, I find that this is a very like, – because I was watching that game live, and when I saw him do that, I was gobsmacked. One, because that just doesn't happen. But two, he also took away a chance for Bulldogs to kind of to kind of give it another crack. Um, and I know that it was hot on all news fronts. Everyone was talking about it. Did he do the right thing? Did he do a wrong thing? And um, some greats of the games, including Billy Slater, said, let the kid play the game the way that he wants to. Like, 
shoot here for trying to try something different. But what what do you think? Yeah, look, I've seen this done before actually. Like probably not that that much to to run. I think he ran ninety meters back and uh, twenty meters infield, twenty meters back across the sideline. So he he ran quite a distance. I don't know if it counted towards his stats. He, he ran the wrong way, so <laughs> it's not progression down the field. Um, but yeah, look, I I agree somewhat with Billy. I think um, as much as it. I was sitting there hoping the Bulldogs got another crack at it. And when I seen him do that, I was probably cursing a little bit. But he, he does what most players do when they're in front and the game's just about done. They waste time trying to get up and play the ball slow. Or if they're defending, they hold the players down for a little bit longer and try and push things with the referee. So he's ad-libbed that a bit further and gone for the length of the field backwards um, to, to kill that time. It's no different to what uh, players do, just not as overt in other ways. So... Um, yeah, play on Sam Walker. He's had a lot of people criticise him, but a lot of big heavyweights in the game um, support him. So he'll get away with it. Uh, if, if I see someone do that in a game, I don't know what I would do if I was on field. <laughs> but anywho, <laughs> let's shift our attention to the Sharks versus Warrior game. They defeated the Warriors 20-12. to What was your take on the game? Yeah, look, the Sharks uh, had a loss last weekend. So after winning four in a row, they needed to turn things around. They did that against the Warriors with a, a strong performance, uh, which was probably highlighted by some of the try celebrations. We know Tri-July, there's a betting partner of, of Rugby League that's that's putting up money to the Mossy Masoi Foundation, which is great, uh, $5,000 per uh, try, post-try celebration. Braden hamlin Willie come up with one of the best ones you'll see. Uh, it was his imitation of The Rock, the people's elbow. Did you see that one? <laughs> I did see that. Yeah, he... he and full credit goes to his teammate, Jack Williams, who took the hit. So Jack Williams comes running in, took a, a shot to the chin, hit the deck, and then yeah, Braden's come off the uh, ropes and dropped the people's elbow on him. It was uh, pretty good to watch. No, it was stunning. And the State of Origin series wrapped up last night with Queensland uh, making a, a bit of a go of it and salvaging some pride. They, they won the last game. So well done to Paul Green, Daly Cherry Evans, and, and their men. It was uh, a tough series, no doubt. They've had a lot of pressure put on them, but they're able to turn it around. In spite of all the, the drama that happened in camp on the lead-up with Jai Arrow getting sent home and, and a lot of criticism towards Paul Green and his team, but uh, well done to the, the Maroons. Says, do you want to take us through the rugby international results over the weekend? Absolutely, the game that they play in heaven. First match we had was Samoa against Tonga. Uh, the Tongan team, as we know, they took a very heavy L against the All Blacks last week, losing one, oh, two weeks ago, actually losing 106 to zero. The score margin between them and the Samoans uh, were a lot closer. It was 42-13. I know some may frown and say, what the hell is that scoreline? But I think it's definitely improvement from the week before. The match that I want to talk about is the All Blacks first flying Fijians game that took place in Dunedin last Saturday. It was the first time for the two to go up against each other in over 10 years. It was such a great match. I don't know if you got around to watching it, but there was such great physicality um, from the first half. And at one point, the Fijians were only behind by eight points. But as we know, and we've acknowledged in this show before, the All Blacks are an all-star team. They are number one in the world and put the game away 57 to 23. Um, it was a hearty performance, one that I'm sure every Pacific Islander was very proud of. And I'm looking forward to them going up against each other this weekend. Yeah, well done to uh, Fiji for their first game against the All Blacks in 10 years, like you said. And, um, you know, they'll take a lot of their game. To, to be able to compete against the best uh, in the world on that stage is something that they've been uh, trying to get. And, yeah, their coach was very happy with the, the performance as a whole, even though you want to get the result and get the win. Um, very happy and looking forward, as you said, to this, this weekend's second test.
Yes, can't wait to watch it. And it was really cool because the captain echoed the same comments that you just made is that they were just wanting to have a crack against the best side in the world and they got to do it. And I think it's every single person that participated in that game should feel really proud that they're not very far off from the best in the world. I know that it's, um again, very big score margin, but let's see what the second match has in store for them. Yeah, and uh, over here in Australia, the French team got some revenge against uh, the Wallabies. They took out the game 28-26 to after being narrowly defeated last week. Oh. So France back on top of Australia for this week. Just for this week. That game in the first half, it was such a messy game. Either side could really protect their own ruck. Came into the second half and um, Michael Hooper, he crossed quite late in the game but gave the boys the lead that they needed. But... Oh, it's just so disheartening. We only lost by two points. <laughs> we were in it. It was messy. By all means, it was a messy game. And I know that the Wallabies were really keen um, to one-up the performance they did last week. But they'll take the L. They've got four days to turn it around before they have another crack and hopefully close out this series with a W next to their name. I love hearing your passion for the for the Wallabies there, says. Yeah. They're closer than they've ever been, Holla. Yeah, it's good. Go the Wallabies. <laughs> Although yes, I'll be supporting the All Blacks when they play against each other. but. On to the other football code, soccer, over in the Euro 2020 uh, Championship. Italy made a lot of English people sad (laughs) by taking out the Euro 2020. Yes, it was the first time for them to win in over 50 years. My WhatsApp groups were pinging at stupid hours (laughs) of the morning. People saying, get up, can you see it? Like, it was... um, it was a really, it was actual scenes because people in Europe are so passionate about their soccer and you could just see the place erupt um, once they secured it. But congratulations to Italy nonetheless. Yeah. What, what do you f- think about games going down to penalties in soccer? I know it's such a big oh. stage. Penalties often decide games like that. And um, look, I feel for the, the English players that that missed those goals, but they, they as, a, as a unit, they've spoken a lot about how close they are, the, the sort of... Um, the culture that they've built within their team. And um, they're, they're very proud of how far they progressed through that tournament. It's been so long since they've won a major international tournament. Um, but yeah, to lose it in, in penalties must be difficult. Oh, it's gut-wrenching. Like you wish you would, you could have another 10 minutes to see where it could take you. But I mean, it is what it is. And you know, let's not take anything away from it. And again, congratulations to Italy. Yes, that was the weekend in sport. Australia. Can you be more Pacific? This week for Talanoa Time, I interviewed Tiana Meteoro. She is a silver fern and a southern steel netballer. Unfortunately, Dean couldn't uh, join me. He was doing whatever he was doing, basically just slacking off. But nonetheless, I'm really excited to share this interview with you guys. She is so mature for her age and you will hear so for yourself. Tiana, thank you so much for joining us on Can You Be More Pacific? Um, I'm so excited to interview you today and to get a little, and sorry, to know a little bit more about you. Um, typically, when we have guests on the show, we start off with a segment called Tip on Questions. It's basically 60 seconds of rapid fire questions. I'll ask you these questions and I basically just want you to say the first thing that comes to mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Amazing. Okay, <laughs> let's go. Which is better, the book or the movie? The movie. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to lately? Um, Harry Potter. Love that. What was your first concert? Um, Hannah Montana. Hey, who was your most but, annoying checkmate? 
Um, myself. <laughs> Love that. Do you have a hidden talent? Um, I have really flexible fingers. <laughs> hey, what's your go-to karaoke song? Um, Can We Talk by Susan Campbell. <laughs> track. That is a track. On a scale of one <laughs> to ten, how good are you at keeping secrets? I'd say a solid nine. Hey, nice. What was your favourite movie as a kid? Um, Ten Things I Hate About You. What's something you could eat for a week straight? Ice cream. Love that. What flavour? Cookies and cream. Oh, yes. Also, I love that you love the song Can We Talk by Tim and Campbell. That is a jam. That is a song you can put you <laughs> in your feels any hour of the day. I love that. Exactly. Um, well, you... <laughs> You nailed that whole tip on section. Um, for our listeners tuning in, could you just tell us your name, your age, and what you currently do for a living? Um, my name's Tiana Kata Mitsuoto. I am 20 years old and I'm a professional netball player and also a part-time student. You're not just any netball, you're a professional netballer and um, a well-established one as well. So take us right to the beginning. How did you get involved in netball? So... Like any New Zealand girl, just started playing real young. Um, I was just playing with my cousins, and I guess everything has been us and it has ever since I was little. When I was 10, I was playing with adults because they always needed a fill-in, and so I just always went along. And then when I was 14, I made the New Zealand secondary schools team, and then the year after that, I made the New Zealand under-21s netball team and then I went to um, the Silver Ferns camps as training as a training partner. And then when I was 16, I made my first professional netball team, which was the Tewanangaro Kawa Pulse, which are based in Wellington. And then that year I went um, to trial for the Silver Ferns and I was 16 at the time. And then I um, continued to play for the Pulse for another three years, so I was there for four years. And then I was in the Silverfern's development squad for about three years, and I got dropped last year. Um, but I think, having said that, there was a phase where I feel like I was really um, uncomfortable being in that environment, having been so young. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have many friends there who were my age. Um, not to say that I didn't have friends um, friends there, because I did, but it was just a bit overwhelming, I think. And I remember there was a camp that I went on for Constellation Cup. I just went for a night, and I think uh, Knowles was kind of bringing me just to keep me in the loop. And I was 18 or 17 at the time, and it was just to kind of um, keep me involved and just kind of get me used to being in that environment, but I just mm. wasn't really ready. And I was still very young and I got really upset and really anxious about everything. And, you know, she kind of just sat me down and she appreciated me being there. But her and Gibbs were kind of just like, we can see that you're struggling and that you're, um, that you are a baby still. And it's totally okay to, you know, not, um, because there was an expectation from the public that I was going to be, I think, I'd seen comments and it was an, and it was an ongoing conversation at the time when I was 16 because I had like a really good season um, when I first came on the scene and I think there was just this expectation I was going to be in the Silverstones when I was really young and my mum was a Silverstone, she made it when she was 18 and, um, you know, 
the public loves to talk and that's kind of what they said and it's it wasn't until and I think it's not until now that I realized I really wasn't ready back then yeah and I've moved down to the South Island now and I'm playing for the Southern Steel and it's amazing it's the best thing I could have ever done for my career um so like I said I'm 20 now and I've this is my fifth season I've already played 50 games in the ANZ um so I've celebrated that small milestone and um, now that I'm here, I'm getting court time um, because I kind of got benched the last two years at the Pulse and um, a lot of learnings came out of that. I became a lot more resilient and, you know, there are so many, and I think um, being benched, you know, it was hard, but there are so many bigger issues in the world. It was just, it wasn't a big deal and I think once I kind of understood that I found other things to do where I could contribute to the team and um, I'm just fortunate enough that an opportunity opened up down here and I took it with two hands and I did struggle the first couple of months having been away from home I'm um, being away from my family because I've never lived away from home before but now that I'm here I'm flourishing and I'm really enjoying it and it's a very cool team culture um, there's kind of like this unspoken um, way in which the Southerners behave in terms of just how straight up they are and how nothing really seems to face them and super hearty people. And it's true. It's a, it's a very cool team culture to be a part of. And the fan base down here is super passionate, super loyal, and, um, you know, the type who will check what's in your shopping cart when you're at the supermarket to make sure you're eating good and, and they hey. and they adore us yeah so it's nice that's crazy and I you know just hearing you speak about how netball started out for you you were so young like you, you speak of when you were a kid you'll just jump in and you'd play most of I guess your childhood netball with adults and that obviously has yeah. paid dividends in your career because you know at the age of 16 you were the youngest member of the New Zealand under 21 team and as you speak you the I guess, destined for the Silver Ferns and you were brought into the picture quite young. I guess you spoke about it, but being in those environments, those professional environments at a young age, did you ever feel like you were missing out on just being a teenager? Yeah, I think I felt like I just missed my friends and I missed being yeah. around people who were my age. And I um, I loved I loved the opportunities that I, that I was given. And, you know, I used to play with the likes of um, Catherine Suvaiti, Phoenix Karaka, um, and you know Katrina Dodi, Amelia, and Tomasi. I played with such amazing people, and they were my idols growing up. But it was just I missed having um, just my fifteen, sixteen-year-old friends. I missed you know going to McDonald's with them after school or during our lunch break, and. I missed out on a lot of school as well, so I kind of um, struggled with, especially 2017, because I went to Africa for the Netball World Youth Cup, um, and I missed a lot of school, and I was very fortunate that um, they were pretty understanding, and once I got back, they had a number of staff members who understood that I hadn't been mm. in school for a month or so, and they were able to help me catch up, but I think... I had, like in reality, we only trained for about four hours. Uh, four to, you know, as most netball teams do, four to six or four to seven hours a day. Twice, a, wow. we trained twice a day, but we only got a 
maybe a day off during the week when I was at the pulse. Um, and so I think that I still definitely had time to hang out with friends. It was more so just when I would go on Silver Ferns camps or development squad camps, I was always super anxious because I did not have friends who were my age. And I guess you kind of, when you are in those situations, you try to find comfort in people. And mm. there were just occasions where I almost felt like I was just putting um, so much pressure on, like I have a friend, Whitney, and I remember the Silver Ferns camp where I was crying, boarding the plane to go for a week in Auckland for our Silver Ferns trial. And I just felt like I was kind of, almost like a burden, just kind of putting this extra pressure on her to make sure that she looked after me, which in a way wasn't really fair because she already had enough on her plate you know, to try and make the yeah. sort of things. Um, whereas, you know, when I was there, I just knew that it was a great opportunity. But, I mean, I was going against Maria Falau and Tepaya Sobe Rocket. So, in Bailey, it's just all these incredible athletes. And I kind of knew, oh, probably not going to make it. But then at the same time, so many people were saying, oh, you might. And it was just a lot. And I just knew that it would have been amazing if there was a 16-year-old silver firm, but I just wasn't ready. And I think I, in those situations, I just missed my own friends and I missed um, just doing regular things, um, even if they were just hanging out at school. But I think I missed, I, it was just that whole age gap that was yeah. really um, overwhelming to me. But other than that, I I. I Say I, I led a fairly normal life. I was just out playing netball with other people. <laughs> no, that's so fair. And, you know, I just kind of want to touch on the milestone that you spoke of earlier. You know, at 19, you were the youngest player ever to record 50 national matches. Um, we... We know that your mum is a well-respected figure um, in the sport of netball um, in, mm. in New Zealand. How, I guess, how special was that moment for, I guess, you, your mum and your family? Oh, it was just, I think it was just also a testament to the people who helped me. Um, mm. get there. I, I mean, the franchise, the Tuan Water Colour Pulse had trusted a 16-year-old to help them get to a final and when they were seriously desperate because they'd asked multiple people before me simply because my mum said no. I was just walking home from um, the ASB Sports Centre, which is just our local sports centre in Wellington, um, after a volleyball match when I was in high school in year 11, so I was 15, and Yvette McCall and Jerry was at my house. And then we just sat down and, you know, she gave me a contract. And it's just all those small moments leading up to that point um, to see that I, A, was still at the same franchise that basically made me, um, that was a really special thing. And I think also just to actually just uh, have reached that point last year in such crazy chaotic times with COVID and mm. um, all those sorts of things. And we were very, very lucky. I think we were the first, I, I think we were the first televised um, sport yeah, um, at that time and it was just with everything that happened putting it into perspective that kind of made everything a lot 
more special and just, you know, you get really grateful for things like that, especially when, um, you know, there are people who lost their jobs at the time. Um, lots to be grateful for. And having my mum just be involved with the franchise, I know she's really proud of me. And if anyone knows our relationship, she actually doesn't praise me for much. Um, and she doesn't say a ton to me. Um, and at best, she'll probably just give me a kiss and it's always like, oh, well done, baby. That was, and that's it. Just well done, yeah. baby. And then we chat about other things. So despite the fact that it seems that I'm just, you know, incredibly confident on court, she doesn't actually give me a ton of praise, but enough to make you feel like you did your job and Good job. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think I appreciate I really appreciate that because I would hate um to kind of be borderline arrogant majority of the time as opposed to really confident in my in my craft and in myself absolutely and I think um just hearing about that your mum has definitely mastered the art of making sure that I guess she praises you but she keeps you um on the on the the straight and narrow um which is actually yeah. really cool to hear about. And just going a little bit deeper on the topic of family, you're of Cook Island, Tahitian and married descent. How important is culture um, in helping you manage the ups and downs of life as a professional athlete? Yeah, one of, it's honestly, no, it's the most important thing. Um, for me in particular, just like checking my privilege has always been a really huge thing for me. Um, I think I... I did an interview recently in regards to um, the netball program pathway that I had started, all thanks um, to the Steel and the Southern Netball community who were all behind me with it. Um, but she asked me, oh, you know, like, um, what were the struggles that you had growing up? And, and like, honestly, I had to answer honestly because I've grown up as a middle-class Cook Island, Māori and um, Asian and my parents were incredibly hardworking. Um, you know, my dad, his parents are from the islands, and they were very hardworking people, and that work ethic passed on to my dad. And I lived, I had a roof over my head. I never had to worry about um, food and things like that, and that's exactly why um, I hold all of those cultural aspects dearly. As now that I'm in a position of privilege, it's now, um, you know, as a paid athlete, it's an opportunity where I can give back to my community who actually have, you know, that real struggle of um, just say if they can't put food on the table, if they don't have that access to sports facilities or they aren't able to buy um, sports gear or they um, just there are things happening at home. Um, there are those sorts of things that I think that, like I said, as a Cook Island Māori patient, I need to be aware of. Um, and I think it's I think it's just changed my perspective entirely. And it's what I study as well at uni, just about history, um, Polynesian history and things like that. And it's super interesting. Um, and it's just you get that real understanding and it's just, um, and I think you kind of understand as well, having said that I do have 
other family members who do definitely struggle a lot more than I do. But like I said, I'm in a position of privilege where I can do that. And I think now that I am in this position, it's about whether or not I am willing to use this platform to help other people. And which my mum has always told me that it was the best thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And I think yeah. that it's so refreshing to hear an answer like that because it's actually hard to, I guess, admit when you check yourself and you notice that, you know, you do, you are in a place of privilege when you know that, I guess, yeah. members in your family might not necessarily be. So um, I think you're mm. you're using your platform in a really, in a great way. And I, I want to touch on a program that you're mm. involved with, which is a, and please correct me if I say this um, incorrectly, it's Te Ara Angatu, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So tell us, sorry, do you want to just say it again for our listeners? Because I, I just I feel um, like I battled saying it. No, that was actually really good. Te ara angi too. Could you tell us a little bit about that program um, and, and I guess how you got involved with it? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but just, I guess, take us to the beginning of it. Yeah. So Te ara angi too just trans, um, translates to the pathway to success in Te Māori. And I had been, I've always been involved with, um, like Māori, the Māori community in Wellington and I've always, like when I've gone back to Raro, I've helped coach some of the local netball teams or just run like a day clinic or something just for a couple of hours um, and other two but when I initially moved down here to the Southern Seal, the CEO had said that she would love for me to be in charge of a program for the Pacific and Māori kids down here. And after that, I had been thinking of all the names and everything like that, and we obviously came up with Te Arangi too. The key to that is to break down the barriers of, you know, the financial side of things and the food, that was another thing, and giving girls quality clothing. So each girl got a, this just like a Puma training thing, like a good and breakfast all the time at every session and it's free so I think there are so many talented Pacifica kids and Māori kids that just haven't got the opportunity because they couldn't afford it and like I said prior um, just before that I grew up a middle class you know brown kid and I was very very fortunate that my parents were able to pay for some of those things and you know, when you're young, you never quite see that some of your friends are struggling because you're just a little nine, 10-year-old. Um, and now that I'm older, I, and I've got friends who really have struggled. Um, and it's just, like I said, now that, we are, that now that I am in a position of privilege, it is about helping those other kids. And they'll remember it forever, and hopefully it'll change their lives and they'll see that there is a pathway and that there are athletes out there who actually do care about them in a way where, um, you know, it's not just about them having to pay me money so they can interact with me because, you know, it's not that deep. It's just all regular people and with or without, you know, the netball title. So that's exactly what the program is about. But I wanted to break that financial barrier Um, and I wanted to give them good quality coaching and it was always really good food at all the um, all the mornings that we practiced and the girls came and decorated our changing room for one of our games 
and they received um, a singlet, like I said. So super simple, super basic. There are so many netball clinics going around, but I wanted this one to be um, really special in terms of kind of trying to create like a new wave and and just Mm. something different. And that was the most important thing was making sure that it was free. So, yeah. I think you're doing really important work and I'm sure that these young athletes will not forget, um, I guess, what you're doing for them and particularly for such a young woman, you've accomplished so much and I guess the scariest thing but the most exciting thing is you're only scratching the surface of your career and um, I think with the work that you've done and the work that you're doing, you are in good stead for a very successful career both on and off the court. Um, Thank you. No, you're so welcome. It's actually really it's really nice to hear. Not nice. I don't feel like that does it justice. It's it's just so empowering to hear that someone of your age is doing as much as you are and has accomplished as much as you have. Um, you know, moving forward this week, you are playing against the Northern Stars. Um, do you have a game day ritual and are you excited to play this weekend? Yeah, I'm so excited. We keep, our team, my teammates and I keep talking about it and it's... Um, Really interesting because everyone thought we were going to suck this season. <laughs> we're doing really well. And I think, you know, people had only just seen when, you know, some of our players are really injured and then we hadn't even put out all preseason. We hadn't won a quarter. And now just the other night, prior to last, game, um, last night's game, we were sitting on the table. And now we've been bumped to third, which we did, of course. Um, but super excited to play this weekend. I think we have done so well already, but we want to keep going and we want to be in that grand final. Um, but I don't really have a, oh, I suppose I do kind of have a game day routine. I always, I always have to listen to music. Um, yeah. but when I, I usually, I try not to be superstitious. And so yep. in saying that, like, with what I, what I eat and stuff. Um, but I always, when I leave the changing room, I always tap the wall four times. I've done it since I was 16. Um, Any wall? And then, yeah, just the, um, just the way out. changing room wall, just on my way out of the changing yep. room. It could be the door or, like, just, yeah, a wall near the door. Um, and then I... <laughs> I think there was an Australian netball who also said this in an interview. And then I think it was um, Catherine Cox. But I, if I ever play really well, like I tend to wear the exact same socks or, um, and the same kind of skins that I wore in that game. And if I shoot really well, I, like I'll wear the same bra. But if I play badly, then I'll change one of those things out. But so far, I've kept my socks and bra the exact same season. (laughs) I actually, I believe in that because I play rugby myself and I only ever wear two bras when I play. And those bras make, like, I swear I play better in them. If I wear anything other than that, I feel weird. Like, it's like I'm not prepared to play. I know, I know. So I get that, I get that. Um, coming to the end of this interview, it's, it's um, I guess, what advice do you have for any young athletes that may be listening in? I think just to um, take every opportunity with two hands, um, but also to really enjoy where you're at right now and 
you know, if you're playing high school sports, that's the best time, literally one of the best times of your lives because it's so much fun. And I still remember very vividly all of the tournaments that I went on. And, um, yeah, I think it's really just about being very present um, and enjoying everything that's happening right now. Tiana, it has been an absolute joy speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, you know, again, I just want to reiterate what I said earlier. I think that you are a sensational athlete. What you've accomplished in the game of netball, not only on a state level, but a national level, I'm sure is something that, you know, New Zealand is very proud of. And every Pacific Islander that looks on is also really proud of you too. So we wish you all the best with your game against the Northern Stars this weekend. And, uh, you know, God willing, if you ever come to Sydney, once um, COVID kind of lifts in out of the picture, we'd love to meet you in person. Yes, definitely. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> that was a great interview, Says She was a, a really impressive young woman. And look, I don't know, you just seem too comfortable without me, so I might have to just check out every week for telling all time. Look, as I long mean, as they don't dock my pay for it, but... Look, all I can say is I have severe, severe neck, shoulder, back pain from carrying this team. That's well, all I'll, I have to I'll, say. I'll, okay, I'll front the bill for the chiropractor. Sorry. Okay, great. I'll, I'll send that on to you. <laughs> Pacific on ABC Radio Australia and ABC Sport Digital Radio. In this week's You Can Ask That segment, I have a red hot question that I want to ask you, Dean. Shoot. What is the relationship really like between players and referees? Oh, it's awesome. They go out for cups of tea together. Oh, stop lying. They, um, <laughs> yeah, they follow each other on social media and like each other's pictures. It's all rosy. Not really. Sometimes it can be really hostile. No, it can be hostile. Look, I, I, I've got an enormous amount of respect for, for referees and umpires. It's a, a thankless job, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you don't often hear about referees getting the calls right. It's never plastered over a back page. Is hey, they got that call right. Well done. Let's put a full page spread on that. No, no, it's about like, what about this error that this referee's made? And um, so it, it can be... I guarantee you for referees, it is a tough environment to be um, on a professional stage as a referee and just wearing all the mistakes because everyone makes mistakes, but um, they're the ones that are highlighted the most by the public. It's such a, I mean, I agree with all the things that you have said. There's definitely been moments that I've been on the field where I guess the ref, I mean, some days, I guess you and the ref, like you know that the ref is for you. And it's funny because before you even go into a game, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, sometimes our captain has actually prefaced us on the coach's attitude. Like, girls, like, he doesn't like us, so we just got to really make sure that, you know, we kind of take a step behind, like, last feed and yeah. the rest of it. And then other ones would be like, this ref is, like, really good. So, like, let's just make sure that we just, like, play the game. Like, sometimes you yeah. kind of get the heads up of, like, what kind of referee to expect. But then I guess it also begs the question – should referees have like that kind of relationship with a player with, I guess they're friendly because, you know, sometimes you can have a ref and we definitely have some in our game that you know them. Yeah. And like, does that, do you reckon that sometimes affects their biasness when they're on the field? Oh, look, I, you'd like to think the referees are, are impartial always when they go on the field. They're, everyone, humans have bias in general. Like we oh, all have biases, but, and, and it, it'll creep in. You'd like to think the referees know how to park that. They're aware of it and they can park that when they get on the field. But um, sometimes it doesn't come across that way. I've, I've actually got a friend of mine who, a really good mate of mine from school, who's a cricket umpire. So he um, plays county cricket over in England. He's, he's played at an elite level for a long time. Um, over the last three or four years, he started umpiring back here in Australia when he returns for the summer. 
and he knows a lot of people in cricket in the domestic scene here in Australia. He's played with a lot of them. So when he umpires, he's got a lot of relationships and he feels that he's given a lot more respect as an umpire because he has those relationships that exist with players. And um, he's trying to make a career out of it potentially for, for his post-playing days, which, which are nearing um, that he becomes an umpire. And he's hoping that those relationships put him in good stead. And, and there's a respect there because he's played the game at a high level that he's making calls that he's had made against him or made for him. So um, it's interesting for him to sort of go through that ex- experience as a current player at an elite level in, in the, on the other side of the world, but coming back here and, and now umpiring a lot of people that he knows, he feels like he's earned respect of, of the players. Um, in rugby league, I think about Henry Perinara, who as a former player played in, in the NRL for a number of years and played at some pretty good clubs. So he had relationships that existed with players and a lot of people knew who he was. Um, but rugby league's a very, very tough environment to be a referee. Just hearing you say that, this question pops into my mind. Do you think that if you're a referee who was once a player, you naturally have more respect than a referee who hasn't had no, I guess, playing experience and comes into the role just as, not just as a referee, but without that playing experience? I think there is it initially. I think it's probably mixed. I think some players might think, uh, how can he referee? Like, oh, 100%. Yeah, like yeah, he wasn't even like, you know, he was this as a player or whatever and then now he's refereeing like, nah, he's yeah. one of the boys, he can't referee. But um, I think that quickly changes over and, and it, it probably goes to that like, oh, you know, he understands where we're at. As soon as a call goes against you, but it's all out the window. So if Henry, and, and I'll use Henry as an example because he's the, the most recent one in my mind and, um, and, and I know him reasonably well, but if he made a call that went against me, then I would have quickly turned and he would have been the same as every other referee in my mind. But um, I definitely respect him because um, he did play the game at that level. But as I said before, I've got an enormous amount of respect for referees in general because I know it's a tough job and I know that they actually have to, since I've finished playing, I've probably changed my view quite a bit in that my respect level for them has gone up even further, knowing what they actually go through in preparation for games, the amount of decisions that they have to make in games, in particular in in, in rugby league and no doubt in every other sport. There's quite a bit happening and it's quite a challenging – it's way more challenging decision-making-wise than than any player has to go through. So um, I think that's something that a lot of people kind of dismiss really easily when, yeah, it's emotionally – um, you're emotionally charged when you, you see your team have a decision go against them. Um, you forget about yeah, the work that goes into it from a refereeing point of view. I just love that. And I want to acknowledge again how much work goes into being a referee. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I think often we, we lose sight that these referees who are on field and cop a lot of heat, not only from the players on the field, you know, not only from, I guess, the management that sit above them, but also from the crowd as well. Like there's yeah. so much happening in that moment, even at the best of times, like my decision-making under pressure is so questionable, yet alone theirs. So I guess to, to round it up, if you know how to answer simply, like what is the relationship really like between players and referees? I think there's a mutual respect. I would hope that there's a mutual respect. The, the, the ref, One thing I do know about referees is they love the sport that they're in. That's why they do it. They wouldn't do it otherwise because, as I said before, there's way too much um, criticism that comes their way. Um, but I do know this, the referees that I know, they, they genuinely enjoy what they do and they love the sport. Um, I think players should recognize that and, and have that mutual respect between each other. They're all out there trying to do their best and perform at their best. Um, mistakes happen, so you've just got to wear it. Love it. And love it or hate it, our game wouldn't exist. That's Neither one of our games would exist without them. So 100%. Yeah. Let's, let's love on our referees more, guys.
Can you be more Pacific? On ABC Radio Australia. The first headline that we need to tackle this week, Hala, has to be the 12 NRL clubs that have to move to Queensland. This is due to the New South Wales COVID outbreak. Very late notice, but all these clubs have moved. Yes, they uh, they actually got on planes yesterday. So um, all those 12 clubs that you mentioned had to had to relocate due to the um, the biosecurity risks that presents in New South Wales currently. And um, thinking of everyone in the community, actually, for that matter, because it's pretty tough for everyone to, to be under these conditions uh, in general. But the NRL recognised that in terms of wanting to keep the game going, um, the best course of action. They had this contingency planning in place from last year's events. So they've uh, they've got it going and they've sent the, the teams up there. Big, big uh, logistical piece to get 12 yeah. NRL squads into Queensland. Uh, there's going to be three hubs, so they're going to be spread out uh, across different parts of, of southeast Queensland. Um, obviously, the other four teams uh, that, that aren't traveling, that that either in Queensland or down in Melbourne, so they get to uh, remain where they're at, which is which is great for those those four teams. Um, but along with that, the NRL's also um, agreed to, to take family up for those players, very similar to what the AFL did last year when they had their relocated hubs. They had families living with, um, obviously, with their, their, their players. And um, it's it's a massive, a massive thing. I, I work at the NRL, as you know, and um, there's been a lot of people that haven't slept this week in trying to get this thing organised. But um, they're prepared and, and they've acted, and hopefully it means that the game can continue and Queensland stays that little safe haven, safe haven that they see it at the moment. You have to commend the NRL for the, taking such swift action and ensuring that round 18 can still go ahead by moving these families so quickly. I have a friend who I, um, as you do, follow your friends on Instagram and, you know, she was kind of upset that they had to leave. But again, she was just so stoked that she could move with her hubby and take the babies with them. So um, very crazy circumstances, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do to ensure that this competition goes ahead. And I take my hat off to NRL and what they've done to ensure that. Yeah, well, as someone that understands what it means to make sacrifices, Sarah, obviously there's there's a number of uh, sacrifices that people are going to be making. And, and, and that's going to be the trickiest thing, I guess, for um, the people that are managing this process is the, the different needs and requirements for each family. There's going to be... Um, partners that are working or having to continue work from home, whatever that arrangement is that they've got going for work, parents that are going to be um, looking out to, to try and get their, their children looked after or cared for while they work from home, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and, and there's there's some um, impending births as well that are that are happening in those, uh, those team bubbles. So um, yeah, it's great that the, the NRL's acted swiftly. It's great that families can be a part of it. Um, hopefully there's not too many bumps along the way. There is definitely going to be some, but hopefully they can be resolved really quickly and players can, can carry on with the competition. And um, yeah, it provides a little bit of relief, I guess, to the community as well when, when they know that um, rugby league is going as close to as normal as possible in, in terms of seeing games on, on screens. But um, yeah, it's just going to be an interesting couple of weeks, if not uh, the next couple of months to see how that rolls out. Well said. Moana Pacifica <laughs> entering the Super Rugby fray, uh, fray from next year. That's going to be good. Yes. Um, their place in the extended Super Rugby competition is yet to be confirmed. Um, it's New Zealand Rugby, sorry, from what I understand, has given them a conditional rugby license. Um, there are a couple of things that are up in the air, including finances, uniforms, etc. But um, the all-black Aaron Mulga is set to be the inaugural coach alongside Philo Tietia. Tietia was a coach with the Sun Wolves and he has um, extensive 
international experience. So, I mean, with Samoa, Tonga, Fiji and Cook Islands all competing in New Zealand shores at the moment, um, including a lot of non-professional unsigned players, it's no, it's such a great time for them to be recognised and who knows, perhaps get themselves a contract. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see how this team looks, uh, how it rolls out and how they, they go throughout the, the Super Rugby season. And hopefully also it, it means like closely behind now will be the uh, Fijian Drua who are trying to get a licence into that as well. Yes, it would just be great to see so many other teams um, added to this competition. And um, as we all can acknowledge, a lot of Pacific Islanders make up um, some really strong numbers in Super Rugby, but why not give more the opportunity to do that as well? Couldn't agree more. And lastly, this week in the Ruck, the Olympics are starting. And it's going to be a little bit of a different Olympics because the stadiums are going to be empty. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh the Japanese government have unveiled that they will have no spectators at the Olympics. As you know, we have a lot of internationals coming into Japan. So, you know, they do have um, a certain responsibility to ensure that their people first and foremost are protected. Protected. It's really unfortunate. Um, but I think in order for the games to go ahead, you've got to make some sacrifices and that just has to be one of them. Yeah, and, and there's really strict protocols on all athletes competing from, from every country. There's going to be... Um, time periods which they have to, um, minimum, sorry, maximum time periods they can be in country for before competing. And then after their last event, they have to get out. I think it's two days they have to be out of the country yeah, by. Right. So, um, yeah, there's, there's strict uh, protocols on, on all players and athletes competing at these games. And um, like you said, the, the health of the community was a priority for the Japanese government, and rightly so. Um, it, it will be different. But nonetheless, uh, one of the biggest sporting events uh, that, that we always witness, uh, that we're lucky enough to witness, I should say, every four years, this time uh, a fifth year cycle, but looking forward to it nonetheless. It's going to be very exciting. I'm particularly looking forward to artistic swimming. Artistic Weird, swimming. but true. Yes. Do you do your own artistic swimming when you swim? <laughs> Dude, I can't even dive into a pool. <laughs> like, real talk. <laughs> you wouldn't take uh, on the no, platform? No, absolutely not. Do you want me to be a bloody fool at the Olympics? <laughs> um, it's about and having to go. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. Not, not for says. <laughs> Can you be more Pacific? On ABC Radio Australia. Keeping it social this week, we've only got one. Well, there was two clips, but it's from one um, culprit. <laughs> His name's Josh Adokar, the fox. The prank star back at it again. It seems to be like every time that the boys go into Blue's state of origin camp, this guy is always at the forefront of pranking his teammates. This week, a hilarious piece of content he put up on his story twice. He got the boys. Um, Actually, I'm going to leave the details to you, Hal. Why don't you tell the people what yeah, the well, socials were? Yeah, well, it was uh, he, he put up uh, a little phone call that he was making to um, <laughs> two of his teammates, separate separate times. But uh, the first one that I seen was Brian Toll. He's doing an interview live on uh, one of the networks. And, yeah, the boys thought, oh, he's on his phone doing this interview. I might just give him a buzz. So it was... <laughs> It was Josh and, and also Latrell Mitchell, and they've uh, yeah they tried tried calling Brian, and his uh, the screen kept shutting off because yeah he was trying to deny, deny calls and he couldn't get his flow on. He, you know Brian's a, a pretty funny guy, lots of character. He just couldn't get his flow on. He's a bit embarrassed. Um, but then they proceeded to do the same thing uh, to Damien Cook, uh, Latrell's club teammate from from the Bunnies, and yeah, similar result. <laughs> Damien he knew straight away that they were just doing the same thing, uh, but no good, no good for the boys. Very funny for everyone else. 
100%. And the best thing about it is Josh Adokar has such a belly laugh that it is so infectious that you just can't help but laugh too. So, I mean, for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, put it through on Google. You've got to watch it. It's hilarious and it rightfully deserves our number one social for the week. ABC Radio Australia. Can you be more Pacific? Heading into this weekend, there are a lot of fixtures to look forward to in the NRL. Hala, what are you most looking forward to? Well, the one game that I'm looking forward to this week is on Saturday. It's the Raiders' home game up against the Sharks, and that'll be taking place on the Gold Coast, uh, one of the the relocated games, or one of all the relocated games across the weekend. Um, but I'm looking forward to this for a couple of reasons. The Canberra Raiders, who showed a lot of promise, leading, or we talked a lot about leading into this season, who have had a pre- pretty up-and-down year, um, players leaving mid-season. Uh, they sit currently in 11th, but they had a really strong win against Manly last week. Both teams uh, missing their origin players, but a, a sign of where they can be at when they're playing well. Um, so that excites me about the Raiders and the Sharks who've been pretty good um, since they made a few changes. Obviously a disrupted start to the year, losing their coach early. Uh, they've pushed into eight spot on the back of four straight wins, uh, a loss, and then another win last weekend against the Warriors. So I think this is going to be a really competitive game. Absolutely, Holly. You've nailed it on the head there. I do have a very important question, though. Will the Raiders be able to adjust to the warmer weather considering it's their home game, or should there be an aircon to make it a little more like home? Well, when they're at home, when it's cold down in Canberra, they put the heaters on in the away dressing sheds to make everyone feel nice and cozy before they run out. Really? Yeah, yeah. So if they put the aircon in their own rooms to try and get it down, <laughs> they're going to run out to heat, and it's going to have the op- it's going to be like the opposite to what they try to do everyone else. So. I reckon they, they need to have no aircon on in the hotel, no aircon in wherever they go. It's just got to be hot so they're ready ready to go. So they can climatize. Acclimatize, to the yes. Is it acclimatize or climatize? Acclim? Acclimatize. Acclim. Well, there you go. You and I are learning <laughs> words on the run. Let's That's go. it. What, about, what are you looking forward to this weekend? Says. I'm most looking forward to the All Blacks best flying Fijian games. As we touched on earlier in the show, it was a very hearty physical match. And again, Fiji would have definitely taken some lessons for it, from it. And I'm keen to see what they do this week. Yeah, it should be a, a cracking game. And always, I personally always love watching the All Blacks play, but I love seeing Fiji on this stage and getting that opportunity. Let's go. Well, says so that's all we have time for today, but we'll be back again next week. Same time, same place. Yes, so if you miss the show or you just want to listen to the magic again, it'll be replayed on Friday, 2pm PNG time, where you can find all of our episodes on the Radio Australia website. Bye there. Bye. Can You Be More Pacific, an ABC sport production for ABC Radio Australia. This program has been funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade.